And uh, now I just need a message to preach. I did have one. Uh, let's turn in the meantime to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And um, just, uh, I was just um, reminded by the uh, songs that we have sing, sung that he is able to hold us, and he certainly is. And um, so I want to just make a connection with that in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, let's read verses 1 through 13, the passage that I quoted earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock, for, that, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality. Some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And uh, just verse 13, he makes a way of escape that we are able to bear the temptation. Now remember, temptation here is not just temptation to sin, it's any temptation not to do the will of God. In the particular context, the temptation to return to Egypt and not to get into the promised land. So how does God make a way of escape? And generally what we, uh, what we think and what we would like to happen is that God somehow um, gives us some kind of, uh, takes us out of the situation. Uh, that somehow uh, we get to escape the temptation. No, he makes a way of escape. He makes provision for us that we might be able to deal with the temptations, that we may be able to deal with the trials. He provides for us in the issue of the falling away, ways in which we can hold fast while he holds us fast. And we've spoken of some of those things this morning, having a real relationship with him. I want to spend uh, the time we have this morning, and probably tomorrow morning, to speak about one of the most important ways of escape that he has provided for us. And it is called the church. You see, we've become so individualistic in our modern age that it's me and I and myself and I have my relationship with the Lord, and the Lord's going to hold me. But in fact, the Lord has provided a means by which He is going to hold me. He has provided a number of things. He's given us His Word. He's given us His Spirit. 
He's given us a relationship with him, but he's given us the church. We have become so scared of church, and I understand that. I know that there are many here that have been burnt and hurt by church. And I share your pain. If anyone has been hurt by church, I have. And I could spend days telling you about my experiences. But it doesn't change the fact that God has provided in the church a place of refuge and a place of sanctity, a place of safety. And folk, if we reject that, we find ourselves in a very dangerous place. And so in the book of Hebrews, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm busy teaching through Hebrews for the how many of time, and it's been a tremendous blessing to me personally as I see the, the central message of the book of Hebrews, and that is that there were these, these Jewish believers, probably in a small assembly, maybe in the city of Rome, uh, who were getting tired. It was just too hard to serve the Lord. Uh, the temptations were real, the persecution was real, and they were saying, no, let's go back to Judaism. Now, we're not Jewish, primarily. Uh, our temptation may be different not to go back to Judaism, but remember that Israel wanted to go back to Egypt. And our temptation is just to give up or to go back to the world. And so he gives them reason after reason after reason why we should not do that. And he also gives us, gives us encouragement uh, that we might be able to continue. And in that process, he says in chapter 10 that we need to consider one another to provoke to love and to good works. And then he says those words which we, which we don't like. Uh, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. And so much more as we see the day approaching. So why does he say so much more as we see the day approaching? Because we need one another more the closer we get to the end. The harder things become. But here's the, here's the problem. The problem is that the closer we get to the end, the more folk are forsaking the assembling of themselves together. The vast majority, according to surveys, of Christians in the Western world do not attend church. Now, I'm going to talk about that. We're not, we, I'm not interested in attending church. It needs to be more than that in the light of what we were sharing this morning. It needs to become a real fellowship, a real place of caring and of protecting and of helping so that when we come out of the world, the church becomes a place of normalcy, a place of reality, a place where I can be loved, where I can be received, where I can be accepted. But in um, Galatians chapter 5, and we made reference to walking in the Spirit, and that's in this whole context, but because of time, I'm, I'm, I'm just taking big leaps here. But Galatians 5, verse 14. For all the love, all the law is fulfilled in one word. 
Even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm going to speak about that tomorrow. Folk, again, just to introduce that topic, the love needs to be real. Not fake, not superficial, but real. And then he says, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Now, I said last night, I'm, I'm not addressing a situation that may have happened in your church. And I believe that every one of our churches have these things happening all the time. And it's not new because Paul's writing to the Californians here. And he's saying this is present here in Corinth. And it's present in every church. Where we, instead of the church becoming a place where we are safe, it becomes a place where we're biting, snapping at one another. Let me make a confession to you. For about three years now, going to church for me and my wife has been the hardest thing we've had to do. Just to get up on a Sunday morning and go to church. Because we know we're going to get bitten. He says, be careful because you will consume one another. What, what a picture. The devil goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, whom he may consume. It's the devil who wants to consume us. He wants to eat us up. But instead of the devil eating us up, we're eating one another up. Fuck what's gone wrong. Instead of us coming to the church and saying, this is a place where I can be safe. Most of us, I suspect, come to church and we're on guard. Who's going to say what? Who's going to think what? What's the next issue going to be? This, was, this is never the intent of the body of Christ. Now, before I address some of those issues, I, I want to also just speak about the fact that in the writer to the Hebrews saying, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And I, I'll probably step on corns and that's fine. But folk, we cannot assemble together on YouTube. That's right. I'm serious. I'm transitioning from pastoral ministry to a different kind of ministry. I'll be doing a lot of ministry on YouTube. YouTube has a place. There are believers who genuinely do not have fellowship. But there are also many believers who do have access to good fellowship. I'm not saying a perfect church. You know the story. There's a perfect church. Don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore. Yes. 
There is no such thing as a perfect church. And we, we keep looking for the perfect church where, the, where the, the, the music is exactly what I like, where the, the ministry is exactly what I want to hear, where the programs are what I want. Where It's all around me. Now, the church is a place where we serve one another. It's not where the church serves me. But as I serve others, my needs are met. And so, folk, I know we've come through COVID. I know you guys have... Sorry, Ella. You guys. <laughs> Ella doesn't like me to say you guys. <laughs> you can say it <laughs> but I know that here in Australia, you, you've had a lot harder time than we did in America in terms of closure and uh, the church has been closed and that kind of thing. And there are times when virtual fellowship is the only option. And if that's the only option, well, then that's great. Praise God for that. I mentioned last night when I went back three years ago preaching to an empty church, I thank God that at least I could still preach and folk could still listen. And that on Thursday nights in our case, we could meet on Zoom and we could pray together and we could break bread together. Now, is that ideal? No, it's not ideal. But it's a stopgap. But that's all it is. The time may come, maybe not in my generation, but maybe in the young people here's generation, when you will have no other option. But right now we have the privilege in the Western world to meet together. Yes. And folks, there is nothing that can replace when I got off the airport and I was able to embrace my brother. And feel his love. There's nothing like that. There is nothing like the church worshiping God together. There is nothing like sitting around the Lord's table and taking the bread and saying, Here's my sister. She is part of the same body as I am. She has eaten of Christ. She has drunk of Him. It doesn't matter how slick the preacher becomes in his YouTube presentation. Nothing can convey the emotion and the spirit that I'm trying to convey to you right now. And folk, we, we glibly sacrifice that for convenience so that I can sit in my pajamas and drink my cappuccino and listen to the preacher. And when the preacher doesn't suit me, I can click and I can listen to the next one. We need fellowship. Amen. And we need real Amen. Yes. fellowship. And folks, because of COVID, many churches have closed down. Mega churches in America have closed down. Small churches have closed down because folk don't want to come together anymore. We need real fellowship. That's right. 
Jesus comes to the Last Supper. And he says, with desire. Remember, this is the Son of God. But with desire. And the, the word is normally translated with lust. See, because we associate lust with sexual things. But lust is simply an intense desire. I've got to have it. And if you've ever been addicted to pornography or sex or drugs or whatever it is, you know what that lust is. Got to have it. And if I don't have it, I'm going to die. And Jesus uses that word. And he says, with desire, with lust, I desired to sit around this table with you. Why? Because he just needed to be with his brethren. He just needed to see them. He just needed John to be touching him. And if Jesus needed that, how much more do we not need that? And Jesus goes into Gethsemane and, and he takes three. And this sounds this is familiar, isn't it? He takes three and he says, Won't you won't you be here with me? And yet they fell asleep. We know the story. If Jesus needed his disciples to pray with him, how much more do you and I need one another to pray with, with us? In the time of trial, in the time of testing. And folk, in the light of what we were sharing last night, we will not survive on our own. And as the devil goes about as a roaring lion, in Africa we know how the lions operate. Notice he doesn't say he goes about as a biting lion. He goes about as a roaring lion. And why does he roar? He roars to instill fear. Because the lion knows that if he attacks the herd, while the herd is together, he's got no chance. So he roars. And the herd begins to scatter. And as the herd scatters... He's able to pick off the weak one. Remember Amalek, God says to Saul. Remember Amalek, how that when you came up from Egypt, he attacked the weak ones in the rear. That's always been the devil's tactic. And if the devil can scatter us and isolate us, he knows that we become vulnerable. We, we sang about the Lord's ability to hold us and to protect us. And yes, he does. In the old days in South Africa, they used to bring the cattle together in an enclosure. Made up in the Eastern Cape where I grew up in, uh, out of thorn branches. And so they would take thorn trees and they would stack them up and uh, six feet tall right around and there's a gate. The lion can't get in when we still had lions. Don't worry, there are no lions walking in the streets in South Africa, bro. <laughs> but they do walk in the streets in California. <laughs> I, I'm serious, they do. So the lion knows he can't get to the cattle inside. Because if he, try, he can't jump over, if he tries to jump, he's going to get thorns, thorns are going to fester and he'll die. So how does he get to the cattle? 
And so what he does is he starts walking around the enclosure and he roars and he roars and he roars. And the cattle become panic-stricken and they break free, break through the enclosure and he has his breakfast. And folk, the devil is going about as a roaring lion and we're breaking free from the safety of the body of Christ and he can have his way with us. Now, having said that, let's turn to Philippians, because I want to get, I want to get practical. Um, I think we've, uh, we've been a little practical, and we want to be even more practical. And I want to just deal with some, some real issues that happens in, in many assemblies. And, and this happens here in the Philippians, in the church of Philippi. Paul is writing to them, Philippians chapter 2. And verse 1, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. I'm not going to unpack that verse. It's jam-packed with truth. But notice he's saying, if there is. Now, is he saying there isn't? No, in fact, this is what should be present. There should be consolation, comfort. In Christ. There should be comfort of love. There should be fellowship of the Spirit. There should be affection and mercy. Fulfill my joy by being like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul says, Make me happy. Make me happy. Fulfill my joy. There is nothing that makes a pastor or an elder happier when the body of Christ is in harmony. Nothing that makes an elder more sad than when there's division and biting and arguing. And so fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Having the same mind. Now this does not mean that we are doctrinally all in tune. We, we, we will never be 100% in tune. We all, we all have slight differences in opinion on all sorts of matters. But again, the context tells us what he has in mind, sorry, when he says we need to have the same mind. Because he goes on, he says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ. Now, what mind did Christ have? He was willing to humble himself. Just summing it all up. So he's saying, let's all have the mind that Jesus had of being willing to humble himself. And folk, here's just a simple reality. Most disagreements in the church are about people not being willing to humble themselves. I spoke earlier, not being able to say I'm sorry. Because if I say I'm sorry, then I'm the loser. Folk, if we all have the same mind, 
of saying, I want to serve you. Because remember, it's not just Jesus humbling himself and saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm poor, I'm a loser. I'm, you know. No, he humbles himself in the sense that he serves. And you remember that as he comes to that Last Supper that I made reference to earlier, there's the argument amongst the disciples. Who's more important? Oh, I'm Peter. And Jesus said he's going to build the church on Pope Peter. Oh, no, I'm John. I'm the one that he loves more than others. Oh, no, I'm Judas. I have the golden rule. You know the golden rule. He who has the gold rules. And every single one of them had some reason why he was more important than the next one. And we know what happens. Jesus humbles himself. And symbolic of his humiliation as he becomes a man, he sets aside his garments, girds himself with a form of a servant, a towel, and he washes his disciples' feet. In the meantime, they're checking each other out. I'm not going to wash. I'm not going to blink first. And Jesus, is, Paul is saying, can't you have the mind that Jesus had? You see, because it wasn't about him being humbled as he kneels before Peter and Judas. You ever thought about it? Jesus washed Judas' feet. The man who had in his pocket had the money that he had sold Jesus for. But Jesus washes his feet and as he washes Judas' feet, he's pleading with, Peter, with Judas. Judas, don't do it. Maybe not in those words, but in his eyes. You see, because he had come to seek and to save. It wasn't his intention to lose any. And folk, when we, when we want to win, we're willing to win at the expense of losing our brother. It doesn't help if you win the argument and you lose your brother. That's right. Winning our brother is far more, not even, not even, it's far, far, far more important than winning any argument. And if I can lose the argument for the sake of winning my brother, I'm not talking about compromise. We spoke about holiness. We, we, we know doctrine is important. We're not talking about compromise because the issues are invariably not over major issues of doctrine between believers. Sometimes it is doctrine. But most of the time it's about petty things. And so let this mind be in you. Um, oh, my soul. Having the same love, I'm going to skip over that because of time, being of one accord, of one mind. I think that word of one accord is a musical term. Now, I, I don't know much about music, but I know good music. 
and good music, everybody plays in the same key, should. should play in the same key. And when each one plays in his own key, you have a mess. Each one doesn't play exactly the same. The piano and the guitars and the saxophone, they're all very different. But they're in harmony. When I came here, <coughs> Pastor Jeff was tuning his guitar. Now it's no good him tuning his guitar to whatever he wants to, and the piano is tuned to something else, and the saxophone is tuned to something else. They all need to be tuned to a common denominator. And we need to be tuned to one common denominator, the Lord Jesus. Amen. And when I'm in tune with him, and you're in tune with him, we're in tune with one another. But when one of us is out of tune with the Lord, we're out of tune with one another. And, and it's a mess. It's discordant. It's a, it's a noise. And so be of one accord. In fact, there's a need for us to seek God. That I, in my walk with God, am in tune with Him. And as you seek God at your house, you in tune with Him. And when we come together... We're able to make beautiful music yes. of one accord. Then he says, verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Now, you need to understand this very complicated Greek word. Nothing. What does that word mean? Nothing. Nothing. There is not a single thing within nothing. Not preaching, not praying, not giving your body to be burnt. Nothing should be done on the basis of selfish, selfish ambition and conceit. Nothing. And folk, I don't know how, how better to describe that. Because unfortunately, a lot of what happens in churches is because of those two things. Selfish ambition and conceit. Let me just deal with those two things quickly and come back to the central thought. Selfish ambition is translated strife in the old King James. And so strife in that sense is not strife in the sense of us arguing. It's strife in the sense of striving for something. Um, oh, I left those notes in my room. But the word is a political word. It is, it is exactly the same thing that happens in politics. It's dog-eat-dog. Dog. Everyone wanting to get ahead of everyone else at everyone else's expense. Is that how the world operates? It's exactly how the world operates. It's how business functions, by and large. It's how politics operates. The word is, it can also be translated politicking. 
when I want to get ahead of you, how can I do that? By stepping on you. By pushing you down. You see, because promotion is not from the left or from the right, but from the Lord. When the Lord promotes us, it's not at anyone's expense. And everyone rejoices and says, praise God, the Lord's blessed my brother or my sister. But when we promote ourselves, we scramble and we play politics and we gossip and we do all sorts of things in order to get ahead. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. So, uh, here's Thayer's. Yeah, let me, let me, here's Thayer's. This is what I'm looking for. Apparently in the New Testament, a courting disti distinction, a desire to put oneself forward, a partisan and factious spirit, which does not disdain low arts, doesn't like to be humble, partisanship, fractiousness, and it, it goes on. Thank you. Now, the other word he uses is conceit. We know what conceit means. Paul writes in Romans, he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. So we have two things here. The one is here, and he wants to be there. Selfish ambition. The other one is here, he thinks he's here. So the one is operating from a basis of he thinks he's better. The other one is trying to be better. And he says nothing should be done on that basis. Now, I'm going to make a controversial statement. But the most dangerous thing in the body of Christ is not false doctrine. And it's not immorality. It's selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Why is that dangerous? Well, because false doctrine is easy to deal with. You, you, you say there is no trinity. I'm able to take the scriptures and say there is a trinity. You are denying an essential of the faith. Brother, repent. <coughs> Or we'll put you out. Simple as that. Brother doesn't repent. We put him out. <coughs> what the New Testament requires. It's easy. It's easy. I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy. It's one of the hardest things that elders have to do. Is excommunicate. Disfellowship someone. Same with morality. Sister did what she shouldn't have done. Sister, please repent. No, she continues in her sin. Remember the man in Corinth? Had his stepmom, it seems. Repent. No, I won't repent. You have to leave. Simple, easy. But selfish ambition operates behind the scenes. Oh, you, you know Pastor Gary can't really trust him, you know. 
He does this and that. Gossip. Slander. Breaking down one another. And I'm not talking just about against leadership amongst ourselves. How do we deal with that? Oh, he said, she said. Sometimes it's just an attitude. I come, down, come to the church on Sunday morning. I stand at the door. Good morning, brother. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? And it's a cancer that spreads within the family, from one family to the next, until the whole church is infected with sectarianism, division, strife. And so let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Does that mean I can't vacuum the floor? Example I used earlier. You see, here's the problem. Some people will gladly vacuum the floor after the meeting when everybody's around, they can see, oh, here's sister so-and-so vacuuming the floor. Selfish ambition. Sister, please don't vacuum the floor. You're doing it for the wrong reason. So that people can say, oh, oh look at her servant heart. All right, I need to... Oh. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other, others better than himself. Let each esteem others better than himself. Think about the twelve. What were they saying? I'm better than you. Therefore, I shouldn't wash the feet. And Paul is saying, no. Each one, think of the other one as better than himself. Oh, but how do I, how, how can I think of brother so-and-so as better than me? You know what he does? He, he doesn't know the Bible like I do. He's carnal. So how can I esteem him better than me? I mean, doesn't Paul say we need to think soberly? And soberly means I need to not think more highly than I should. And I should also not think more lowly of myself than I should. So yeah, I'm, I'm more spiritual than, than Brother Jeff. So how, how are we going to do this? Are, are we, are we going to have to fake this? And that's one of the problems is that a lot of what we do is fake. And so I fake it and I say, ah, oh, you know, my brother, you're, you're so wonderful. But there's no reality to it. I'm politicking. As we say in America, I'm shaking the hands and kissing the babies. How can we esteem one another? And, and, and notice what he says. 
let each of you, uh, sorry, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others. So just as nothing means nothing, each means every one of us needs to reckon or esteem everyone else as better than ourselves. Now that's hard. Until we have come face to face with the rottenness in our own souls. And until you have seen yourself for who you really are, you will always find others despicable or certainly lower than you. Folk, I minister to brethren who've been in prison, who are into drugs. One of the young men from our assembly was killed two months ago in an assassination, in a drug deal that went bad. He wasn't saved. His parents are in the church. How do I esteem those people who are on and off drugs better than myself until I've seen my own heart and the potential? Not there by the grace of God go I. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this sinner over here. Until the reality dawns upon me that I'm no better than my brother. I'm no better than the drug addicts in my church. It's only God's grace. And I don't say that in a sense of arrogance. And I don't understand God's grace in that respect. I'm not a Calvinist. But I recognize that God somehow has been exceedingly gracious to me. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be standing here this morning. But God in his infinite mercy has saved me. And I know what's in my heart. I know how easily I'm tempted. I know how easily my thoughts go astray. I have no basis to look down on anyone here this morning. Because the grace that God has bestowed upon me, He's bestowed upon you. Amen. Yes. Thank you, Lord. And so let each esteem the other better than himself. And brother, if you're better than me, that, that needs to become real. It cannot just be fake. It can't just be a theory or a theology and say it needs to become real and it cannot become real until I've come face to face with myself. And when that happens, it's not hard to say, brother, I'm sorry. I sinned against you. Because I've come to understand I'm nothing. I deserve nothing. 
And I'm not saying that in a fake humility thing. We, we don't want to go there because, I mean, we, we so easily put on humility. The South Africans here will understand when we, in South Africa, we have a thing called Radio Pulpit, which is a radio uh, gospel ministry. And I have a saying, I speak about a radio pulpit voice. I think Brother John understands what I'm meaning. Oh, we're so loving, brother. And we just love you, and we're just so humble. God is just so good. It's fake. It's not real. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a reality dawning upon our hearts that I'm the chiefest of sinners. The chiefest of sinners. Paul's not putting on a front. He's not, he's not trying to make a point. He's not being... Uh, he's not speaking in hyperbole because he'd come face to face with who he really is, a murderer. Brethren, every one of us, sisters, every one of us is a murderer because we hate our brother. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. I'm sorry. Every one of us is a thief because we steal God's glory. And the list goes on and on and on. Let me, let me finish. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Church cannot be a dog-eat-dog -dog situation. Where all I'm interested in is getting ahead. Where all I'm interested in is in my interests. Because, folks, here's just the reality. That if I'm looking out for me, and you're looking out for you, how many people are looking out for me? Just me. Because everybody else is looking out for themselves. But if each one of us is looking out for one another, I don't know how many are here this morning. Say 80. I have 80 people looking out for me, looking after my interests. And you have 80 people looking. Folk, I, I'm not good at math, but 80 is more than one. <laughs> But we'd rather have the one and give up on the 80. No, let's all look out for one another. Let the church be a place of refuge where I can come in from the noise and the nonsense and the fighting and the politics and the stuff that's happening out in the world, that's happening at the, in our workplace. And that sometimes happens in our families, particularly in unbelieving families. And let me come to the church and be embraced by my brethren. Amen, yes. Be received. Again, I'm not talking about compromise. If sin is there, sin needs to be dealt with. 
False doctrine needs to be dealt with. But where we each are looking out for one another. Folk, where we become real. I've said this over and over. This is how it goes in every church. Good morning, brother. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Bye-bye. What did that mean? Nada, nothing. Nix. Brother, really, how are you doing? Let me give you time. Let me hear your heart. Let me weep with you. Let me rejoice with you. Let me pray with you. If one member suffers, we all suffer together. But is that real? Most churches it's not. It needs to be real. And I'm not talking about the church becoming a self-centered pity party where each one, you know, gets up and, you know, I've got all these problems and it's on and on and on. But where there's a real heart and a real care for one another. Part of our testimony is that God healed my wife and I's marriage 20 years ago. Miraculously, powerfully. And one of the things that happened is that we stopped trying to get one up on the other. And we began to look out for one another. We began to be able to trust one another. And I know when the chips are down and when everything has gone wrong and everyone has turned against me, I have one friend. But folk, that should be true of the body of Christ. Where we have absolute confidence and trust in one another. But it needs to go deep. It needs to become real. Because if we don't have one another... We have nothing. And if we bite and devour one another, we have less than nothing. Because we're in peril in the world. And as Paul says, unfortunately, there are times when we're at peril with our brothers. Paul's own brethren in the faith wanted to consume him. What a terrible place to be. And so may we build our churches as places of sanctuary. Places of safety. Places where we can be loved and cared for and protected and understood. Places where we look out for one another. Amen.